You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, church. Welcome to our Labor Day weekend gatherings, or as we like to call it, the I didn't get invited by anyone to go camping weekend. So thank you for being here. Uh, no, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked for what we're doing today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and get there, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles at the end of each row. We really, really believe in the power of God's Word to change lives. We want to make sure that everyone we come in contact with has access to God's Word. So if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, um, grab one of those. Take it home. Or better yet, talk to one of our pastors and we will we'll get you one with less coffee stains on it. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 13 today. Uh, we're, we're stepping out of, we've been in uh, doing this study through Mark for a hot minute, and as we do a few times a year, we're going to hit pause on that, and the month of September, we're going to spend time uh, doing, doing a more topical series, talking about a specific just kind of progression of thought um, as, our, as our pastors, and as I've kind of prayed over it, we kind of put this, this thing together, and so we're calling this series No Bench, and, and the idea there is that um, there's no such thing as a spectator in the kingdom of God or a second string in the kingdom of God. And really quick, I have to pause there because that concludes the entirety of my knowledge of sports analogies. So uh, if you were hoping for more, that's it. That's all there is. So, <laughs> but seriously, you, you guys get the image of it, the idea that, that in God's kingdom, we are all called into the work, into active participation in the mission of God in a broken and dead world. And I think the Western church struggles a lot, a lot, with sitting on the sidelines, with sitting and watching and, and being spectators rather than participants. And so we're going to talk a lot about that this month. And I I just can't wait to get into it with you guys. I have been praying over this month and this time together as a church for a while. I've been eagerly anticipating this time together. I want to tell you guys this, like I'm praying that God convicts us this month. I'm praying that God pierces us and cuts us this month. You know, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 says that the Word of God is living and active, that it's like a two-edged sword, that it cuts and pierces and divides, that it divides bone from, from, from sinew, right? That it, that it cuts into us. Beloved, I'm praying this month that God cuts into us, that He, that he separates some of the bone from sinew, and we see some of the difference between our actual faith and our identity out of this world, not of our flesh, not of our culture. That we separate those things. I'm praying this month that God uses His Word and His people to convict and call people in this room to full-time mission work. That, that people in this room right now would surrender the call and go. And be amongst the people who are dead and dying and lost and desperate. I'm praying that God would call people in this room to, to go out and to give of themselves financially and sacrificially in their time and their schedule and their family to adopt and foster hurting and hopeless kids. 
I'm, I'm praying that God would use this time and this season to call and convict us to give of our time and energy and money in serving the children and students in this church. That God would call us and convict us to participate in the work through serving those who are impoverished and those who are homeless and those who are really wealthy, but they just hate themselves. I'm praying that God would call us to action. I'm praying that for you, by name. So let's do this. Now, I, we're going to talk a lot about being involved in the work of the kingdom and and. And that's, that's good. But we're starting today in Matthew 13. And the reason we're starting in Matthew 13 is that we can't start with the call of God to participate in the work of the kingdom. We can't start there because the reality is there's a ton of different things that can motivate us to get out of our chairs and into the world and participating in the work. And a lot of those motivations are worthless. We can hear a missionary talk about the the millions of people who die each day with zero access to God's Word because no one has translated the Bible in their language and no one has sent missionaries to their culture and no one has ever told them the truth of the life to be found in Jesus. And that can make you feel a little guilty. And we can go and we can do something motivated by that. Or we could talk to you about the Great Commission and how God has commanded us all to step up and get out of our seats and participate in the work of loving and serving hurting people so that more might know about the kingdom. And that duty to your Savior might cause you to get up and do something. But beloved, if you engage in the work of the kingdom out of guilt or duty, you are useless to the work of the kingdom. And that's a harsh thing to say, but I want us to hear that. If, if all we do in this time is feel guilty because we're not good enough Christians, and we get up and we go sign up to go feed homeless folk at churches in the streets for a few months, you just haven't, you haven't actually done anything for the kingdom. So we can't, we can't have this conversation about our call to be engaged in the work and start from this, pro- this perspective of guilt or duty, because guilt and duty are useless to the kingdom. The fuel of kingdom work, as we're going to see today, and this is going to get us into Matthew, the fuel of the kingdom work is one thing and one thing only. That's overwhelming joy in the glory of a loving and kind God. It's the only thing. So turn with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 puts us square into the middle of the third discourse in the book of Matthew. Matthew, if you don't know, is divided up into five discourses or teachings and five prolonged narratives or stories. And each section of stories connects to a section of teaching. It's just the way Matthew chose to organize the story for us. So in Matthew 13, we are square in the middle of the middle teaching. And if you know anything about um, kind of Hebraic culture and writing, there's weight to that. 
that the, the, the peace in the middle kind of works its way out to the edges and gives us some of the overarching vision for the, the total work. And so Matthew 13 gives us, in Matthew's eyes, a lot of the core of Jesus' message. So we're going to read just a couple short verses. This is a series of parables about the kingdom. We're going to start in verse 44. In the 44th verse of the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew tells us this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, going into verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And this is the word of the Lord. So we have this teaching today that's, that's built out of, out of a parable. This is one of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching, as we see in the Gospels, where when he talks about the kingdom of God, this, this thing that he's announcing and inaugurating, he uses these word pictures to describe it. And it's really important here for us to talk about what sets the book of Matthew apart and what sets a parable apart. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of these larger contextual, these larger linguistic pieces. Then we're going to point out just a couple cultural things that give some meat to the bone of these parables. And then we're going to bring that home and talk about some of the teaching of the apostles and how that applies to the church today. So we'll start with the gospel according to Matthew. This is a unique work. If you've never spent time studying Matthew, it's, you probably have. It's, it's pretty much the most taught gospel of the four. It's why the early church put it as the first one, because it was the most popular one. But Matthew is not actually the first gospel written. It's either the second or the third gospel written. Now, if you recall, we've, we've been in Mark for like a year now. Maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. We've been in Mark a long time. It's just blurring together, guys. Uh, but Mark was actually the first gospel to be penned. And then Matthew was written after Mark. And if you remember, Mark was written in the 60s, right around the time that the Nero's persecution began to kill off the apostolic leaders in the church. Matthew was written after that. And there's something just really interesting about that. It says a couple things about what Matthew thinks about Jesus' story and what Matthew thinks about the purpose of this book. So remember, Matthew, we're talking about Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, one of the twelve, one of the apostles, one of the followers of Jesus, who was a first-hand witness of Jesus' life and mission, and yet he chose to basically quote 75% of Mark in his telling of the story. And Mark wasn't a first-hand witness. Mark was a second-hand witness who received his teaching from Peter. So it tells us something interesting about Matthew, that he saw Mark as valuable enough and authoritative enough and accurate enough that he basically just quoted most of Mark. Almost the whole book of Mark is contained within the book of Matthew. It's actually one of the reasons that we don't have as many early copies of Mark from the first couple centuries because it was so expensive to copy a text by hand that the early Christian scribes would look at it and they'd go, man, Mark's really important, but you know if we just copy Matthew, we get all of Matthew and most of Mark. 
Literally, they, they, that was the thought process. And so there are less surviving copies of Mark from that early period when Christians were persecuted and had less resources to do the work. So Matthew saw Mark's account as valid enough and authoritative enough to just take it and quote it freely. And yet he also saw Mark's account, saw how the church was engaging it. By the time Matthew was written, Mark was widely circulated throughout the church. He saw how people engaged it, how it affected people, and he still felt the need to write Matthew, right? He saw the work, he respected it, he quoted from it, but he also saw another need that he felt needed specific attention in the church. And so this gives us kind of the tension of the differences between Matthew and Mark. Mark tells the story of Jesus for the hurting and persecuted Greek church. Remember, Mark was primarily written for the Roman church under persecution. And God used it for the larger church. But but Mark had a specific vision in mind and was presenting Jesus and his message in such a way as to bring hope and encouragement to these hurt and huddled and persecuted Gentile believers. And so when Matthew writes, he takes a step back and essentially says, yeah, but but how can we take Jesus' story and apologetically and evangelistically apply it to to the Jewish people? And so Matthew represents this work that essentially takes the story of Jesus, almost verbatim as it's found in Mark, and and reapplies it by, he works to essentially connect the life and story of Jesus to the larger story that God has been working from Genesis through the entire Old Testament. Matthew is really concerned with the Jewish people seeing Jesus as part of God's overarching story that he's been working. And so he speaks into a lot of specific Jewish apologetic and theological concerns in his application of the story. It's also why he structures it around story and discourse. This was a common genre or way of telling stories in that world and to those people to take a teacher and to show his actions and his teachings and kind of compare them together. So Matthew is doing this work of trying to show God's chosen people, right? Listen, God is doing something new. The kingdom is here. And it comes down to this idea of what is the kingdom of God. You see, in that day, the Jewish people were really, really, really expectant of the coming Messiah and the coming Savior. They had all read Daniel, right? They knew the prophecy that at some point God was going to send his anointed one who was going to destroy and judge the kingdoms of this world and was going to establish God's people in freedom and under his authority. And they were eagerly expecting that. And when Jesus came along and brought and ushered in the kingdom, he essentially took that Jewish expectation and said, listen guys, yes, that day is coming. There will come a day of final judgment, but God is not ready to just burn everything up and throw it all away. He is going to bring his kingdom slowly and quietly and relationally so that more people can be drawn from death to life. And praise be to God that he is that gracious to give us time. Amen? And so Jesus brings about this teaching where he says, listen, listen, listen. Yes, the day of judgment is coming, but 
That's it, not what it is. It's not going to be some, some judge coming and raising up an army and defeating Rome. That's not what it is. No, God's kingdom is here and it's now. And you've been invited into it. And you can find life and freedom from sin. And you can tell more people about that. And more people can be drawn into God's good, life-giving grace. And you can just keep doing that. And at some point, yes, he will come and fix everything. But that's not right now. That's not what we're to worry about right now. So this is kind of this larger point that, that, that Matthew is making. He's, he's trying to show that the kingdom of God is not what the Jewish people thought it would be. Or not necessarily that it wasn't what they thought it would be, but that they, they, they needed to enlarge in their picture of God's kingdom. They need to see that, yes, there will be a moment in time of God's final judgment and restoration of everything broken, but that's not right now. Right now is God's kingdom inaugurated quietly. The Jews were waiting for loud, and Jesus came quiet. The Jews were waiting for power, and Jesus came humbly. The Jews were waiting for war, and Jesus came in peace and teaching. He just subverted their expectations. Because of that, Jesus largely taught about the kingdom in parables. He used these word images these stories that, that helped you kind of understand what he was talking about without just bluntly saying it. And there's a whole myriad of reasons we could get into about why Jesus chose to preach in parables versus just speaking bluntly. But the point is, he chose to use these things called parables. These little pointed stories that prove or show a larger part or a larger aspect or truth of God's kingdom in a way that pierces and kind of gets around these deeply held convictions that people had about how God's kingdom was going to work. It allowed Jesus to teach and slowly draw his followers to the truth of the kingdom without just the system shock of Jesus being like, all right, here's how it's going down. I'm the Messiah, but you're wrong about what that means. I'm going to go die. Let's go do this. Because like, that, uh, Jesus just didn't choose to do that. He chose to do it slowly and subtly and graciously. And so with that kind of thought in mind, let's reread our text really quick, and then we'll, we'll pick apart these two parables. So rereading, starting in Matthew 13, 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus gives these two just bullet point stories. And it's important to note here that a parable is different than an allegory. And an allegory, like if you read Pilgrim's Progress, right, every little aspect is planned and populated to give meaning and connect to this and to that. That's not how parables work. Parables, generally speaking, make one or two rock-solid points, and the rest of the story is inconsequential. And so one of the dangerous things we do is over-interpret parables, and we assign meanings to every nuance in the story. And that's not what Jesus is doing. You have to remember, these were spoken teachings. Jesus, I mean, each, each of these parables is like one sentence, right? This is something that Jesus could say really quickly in passing, and on hearing it, you could just kind of get the point of the story. 
So the thought of going in and like deeply analyzing like word by word and trying to pick it out, it kind of takes it out of what what it's meant to be. And so when we study parables, we kind of have to let them be a little more simplistic than we're used to this kind of thing being. We're used to sitting in English class and doing our literary analysis and, you know, picking apart the author's intent. But parables are meant to be relatively obvious. There's a point here. So Jesus gives these two parables. And the first one is essentially this. There's a day laborer out working. While he's working, he finds a buried treasure. He freaks out. He covers the treasure back up. He goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy the field and now own the treasure. That's the story. Now, again, nothing in here, nothing in this story is talking to us about the ethics or morality of this guy's financial choice. There's really just one point that's being made here. So, 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 so here's, here's the piece you have to get to get the point and the piece that we would kind of miss when we first hear this. Buried treasure was actually a common trope in that world. Because Palestine was a, not a peaceful place. This was a place that had been ravaged by multiple wars from tons of empires for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There was no secure system of storing and hiding and protecting your wealth. And so often, people would take their wealth and bury it. Well, if you go bury your family treasure in the backyard... And then whatever it is, new empire this month comes by and destroys you and your family and reallocates your yard to someone else. They have no idea your treasure's there. And you add three or four more conquerings and lootings on top of that, and you might end up with someone who's just out wandering in their grain field one day and trips over someone's buried treasure from 100 years ago, right? And so this trope existed in the culture. It was, imagine the way Americans daydream about, oh man, if I won the lottery, I would... In in the same way, Jews of this day would go, man, you know, if I was just out and I found a buried treasure out in my field, oh my gosh, I would do this, 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 and this. So Jesus grabs a hold of this established cultural trope and just says, hey, so there's this guy, he was out working, he stumbled upon a buried treasure. By the way, this trope was so established in the culture, there were actually set laws in place in Palestine about what one could and couldn't do if they found a buried treasure. It was actually a thing. And so Jesus actually speaks into that. He doesn't dig the treasure up. He covers it back up. Because if you lift the treasure out of the hole, well, now it becomes the immediate property of whoever owns that field. That was the law of the land. So Jesus says, this guy's out working. He stumbles upon a treasure. In his joy, he covers it up and goes and sells everything he has to buy the field. There is one point to this story, and it's the word joy. It's joy. This guy just won the lottery. He stumbled upon this this treasure. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy the field. In his joy, he sells everything he has so that he can go have this field. Right? The second story is like it, a little different. A merchant is out in search of fine pearls. When he finds the one he's looking for, he sells everything he has so he can buy it. The point of the story is the exact same. 
A guy is out looking for pearls. This is the image you get in your mind is of essentially like a jewelry dealer. He's out in search of fine pearls. When he finds the one, the one that catches his eye, the one he's been looking for, in his joy, he sells all that he has so that he can purchase the pearl. The point of the stories is one thing. If something overjoys you, you'll gladly sacrifice for it. Because it fills you with joy. So you'll gladly give up lesser joys to have a greater joy. It's human nature. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. People will gladly sacrifice lesser joys for greater joy. That's it. Now, there is one little contrast I like to point out when we talk about these two parables. Because Jesus told, chose to tell two stories. And there is one specific contrast between them that I think is good that you, you might notice when you hear them in succession like that. And the first one is this. The day laborer stumbled upon a treasure that he wasn't looking for. He found it by accident and was still overcome by joy. The merchant was diligently searching for a treasure. And when he found it, he was overcome by the same joy. Whether you are looking or not, when you find the joy your heart longs for, it overwhelms you. So, the idea here is that one will gladly sacrifice a lesser joy for a greater joy. This, this is this just truth that you hear it and you kind of go, yeah, of course, that makes total sense. But Jesus is saying this truth is inherently connected to how the kingdom of God works. Now, it's important really quick to talk about how we engage parables. This is not 100% true, but the vast majority of the time when Jesus gives a parable, you can think of it similarly to how we interpret Old Testament prophecies. There are multiple layers of application, right? So if you go back and you read Isaiah, in general, those prophecies had an immediate fulfillment in something that was going on in Israel, and they also spoke to later things concerning Christ or the church or, or the final judgment. And so there were multiple layers of application to the same thing. This is generally true in Jesus's parables, especially his kingdom parables. And the easiest hermeneutic to bring to Jesus's parables is this. First and foremost, Jesus's parables are almost always about Jesus. So you can start by asking the question, is Jesus the main character? And what does this parable mean if Jesus is the main character? And once you have that conversation, then you can go back and have a second conversation about, man, what, how would this change or how would this differ if it was about the church, Christ's bride? And that's, again, that's not going to land you 100% of the time, but the majority of the time, especially in the kingdom parables, that's going to get you really close to what Jesus is talking about. So if we look at these parables from the perspective of how is this about Jesus, what if Jesus was the main character, we have to ask the question, what does this parable mean if Jesus is the day laborer? Or if Jesus is the merchant? It's an interesting thought. Jesus is out, and he finds a treasure that he values greatly. And in his joy, he sells all that he has so that he can purchase it. That's interesting. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12 right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, there is a truth that is incomprehensible when you actually dwell on it and meditate on it for a moment, but there is a truth that the Scripture teaches us that Jesus, upon looking upon his precious children, he saw a treasure so valuable to him that he gladly sold everything he had to purchase it. That's a weird thought. That, that the motivator that brought Jesus to the cross was the joy set before him. Let's, let's chew on that for a minute. How does that reconcile to the truth of sin and the truth of brokenness and the curse and, and the fact that humanity is inherently dead in our transgressions? How can an infinite, perfect God see something so valuable in humanity that he joyfully gives himself up to the tortures of the cross, to the tortures of the incarnation, to the tortures of the curse itself, that he might have them. When I think about myself, that seems like a foolish purchase. If we reflect on our own flesh, our own sin, our own decisions, not even getting to the atrocious things humanity as a whole has done, but if I just reflect on myself, that seems like a foolish purchase. And yet for the joy set before Him, for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. What do we do with that? To me, it, it brings about this idea. And this is actually what we're going to talk about next week. Jesus so joys in his creation, in his children, for one reason and one reason alone. We are made in the image of God. When God created humanity, he stamped his image onto us. He and inherently and eternally connected our identity and our person and our existence to him and his own glory. Jesus, in seeing God's image broken and dead and destroyed by sin and the curse, so overjoyed the thought of redemption, at the thought of true worship, at the thought of the glory of God, that he endured the cross and despised the shame. You see, there's this idea here that God's glory fuels true worship. And this is actually, guys, what I want us to land on today, is worship of God as the fuel for our engagement in the kingdom. You see, there's this idea, right? We, we see in Scripture over and over and over and over that the glory of God's name is his primary motivator. It's the thing that causes him to act, to move. And so when we say that, man, Jesus joyfully died for the people who were lost and dead, 
We, we see in that this motivation of for God's namesake, for his own glory, which to us can sound like this thing that's kind of detached and selfish. Like, don't you care about hurting and suffering people? Of course he does. You see, when we, when we think that, we, we, we misunderstand what God's glory is. John Piper says it beautifully. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Or he says another way, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You see, there's this idea that worship, worship is in and of itself, not an expression of song, not an expression of praise. Worship in and of itself is just an internal experience of the enjoyment of God. To worship God is to treasure Him. It's to enjoy Him. It's to value Him. It's to experience His goodness and to love it. And it will overflow into praise and song and dance and fellowship and experience and all those things. C.S. Lewis actually famously said that you can't fully enjoy something until you praise it. That's why people who are in love constantly talk about the person they're in love with. Because by speaking out loud how much you find joy in something, you complete the experience of enjoying it. So enjoying God, treasuring God, will result in praise, it will result in songs, but ultimately, worship is the experience of the enjoyment of God, and to truly treasure and to truly enjoy God, this is to glorify Him, to know His goodness, to experience it, to find joy in it, which gives us the second understanding of the parable. If the church is the day laborer, if I am the day laborer, then upon stumbling upon the truth of this kingdom, I am so overjoyed that I gladly sell everything I have, that I might have the kingdom. So, so I, want you to, I want you to bring all this together with me. I know there's a lot we're talking about here. But the reality is, Jesus sees something in you that is inherently valuable to him, that is precious to him, that joys him. Paul said it like this, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love for you somehow sees you in your sin, sees you in your selfishness, sees you in your deceptiveness, sees you in your pride and your arrogance, sees you in your absolute death caused by the curse of sin and says, man, I want that. I want them. I want to take them and and fix them, and restore them, and repair them, and connect them to God, and give them joy and life. I want that. I'm going to do that. This is our Jesus. And in his joy, he sells what he has. He loses. He, he experiences suffering, and loss, and curse, and pain, that he might have the greater joy to him. That is, that is mind-breaking. That doesn't make sense to us. 
you know, it's right there. That's what Jesus teaches us. It's what the scripture points to. And so, beloved, when we, when we talk about the church being involved in the work of the kingdom, there's no, there's no like, oh man, you need to go and you need to sacrifice and you need to pick up your cross and follow after Jesus because he deserves it. He does, absolutely. That's a terrible motivator. There's no, you need to do this because God said so. He did say so. That's a terrible motivator. Beloved, the reality is, as you grow in your enjoyment of God, you will gladly do those things. Because the kingdom of God is like this. Humans will gladly sacrifice lesser joys for a greater joy. So if you enjoy God, you will sacrifice lesser joys for him, gladly, because he made you to do that. The question we must ask is, do we actually enjoy God? Does the reality of Christ's insane, ununderstandable love for you as a dead sinner invoke the same joy that is invoked by the thought of winning the lottery? Because that's what this analogy Jesus uses here. Do you enjoy God? Because when you enjoy Him, which by the way is worshiping Him, when you worship God, you gladly give yourself for the work of the kingdom. David Livingston, the missionary to Africa, once was giving an address to college students at Cambridge, and he said this, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk often of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in the wilderness and in Africa. If that is a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthy activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of a glorious hereafter, away with the word in such a view. What, what a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice for me. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger now and then, foregoing of common conveniences and charities of life, this may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to stink in despair, but let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to inland China, said essentially the same thing on his own deathbed. I never made a sacrifice. After living his life, foregoing every comfort and pleasure imaginable. You know, Hudson Taylor, when he was in his 20s, he felt called to the mission field, but he thought he needed to finish his medical degree so he would have something useful to do in China. And so he thought, man, I'm just wasting all this time in my 20s while I'm finishing school. How can I be preparing for the work in China and the life of the missionary? And he thought, I know, I'll train myself to suffer so that it won't be a surprise to me when I get there. And he kept a diary and a journal and day by day, he lowered his own food ration until he could determine the smallest amount of food he could eat and still do his schoolwork and walk to work back and forth during the day. 
And he praised God for this. He said, I found the balance. I can buy a small little loaf of brown bread on my way home from work at night and two apples in the market, and that'll last me through breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I can still walk my nine miles both ways to work and back, and I have enough mental energy to get my schoolwork done. That's amazing. That lowers my budget down to this. Now I can set aside this much extra money to buy my ticket to China, and once I get there, I'll be so used to this way of living that I'll be able to give away half my missionary salary. Which he did, by the way. Until he decided that he couldn't take a salary in good conscience. So he stopped. And he trusted God to provide for him for the rest of his life. Beloved, when we enjoy God, when we worship him in spirit and in truth, with our our soul present and our mind assenting to the reality, Such things are not sacrifices. They're joys. Because the kingdom of heaven is like this. Human beings will gladly give up lesser joys for greater joy. John Piper famously said in his work, let the nations be glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Beloved, every human being was made to worship and enjoy this God. And we were made to worship and enjoy this God for one simple reason. He's enjoyable. He's good. He's loving. God is good. And he actually wants what's best for you. And when you experience that, It is so enjoyable that the lesser things of this world just seem lesser. Beloved, the world is offering you a frozen TV dinner and our sweet Jesus is preparing for you a magnificent feast. Why would we pick the worst one? Why would we choose with our lives to pursue comfort and wealth and large families and a good job in a cush retirement in the best TV package in a nice car and a loving set of friends. Why would we choose those things over the kingdom of God? Over life for the lost? over joy for the sorrowful and hope for the hopeless. Beloved, we are we're giving ourselves over to junk food while our sweet Savior is preparing a feast for us. Let it not be so. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and we're just going to open up a time of worship in this space. And what I mean by that is, I want us to reflect on the goodness of God. I want us to take a few minutes to enjoy Him. And so however you need to do that, you feel free to do that. If you need to get by yourself somewhere in a corner of this room and pray and confess your own self-centeredness, if you need to come up and take communion and take the bread and the blood and reflect on Jesus' body broken for you and His blood poured out for you, then you do that. If you need to find a pastor and have them pray over you, we're around. 
the Spirit leads you to pray over the church, you just come grab the microphone and do it. We're going to take a few minutes, and I just, I want us to be honest with God about this. I want us to talk to Him about what we actually enjoy. Beloved, if you're in this place, and the Cheetos of this world just seem better to you than the banquet of the kingdom, talk to Him about that. Tell him how easily satisfied you are. Ask him to woo you. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Beloved, I promise you, you don't have to be guilted or dutied into doing the work of the kingdom. It's just worth it. You're made for it. So tell him that. Ask him to woo you to the goodness of his kingdom. He will. Jesus, you're so good to us. You're just really good. God, this morning, remind us of that. Remind us how refreshing you are. God, overflow our spirits with the joy of your goodness on our behalf. Let us drink deep of the living water and take large gulping bites of the bread of life. Let us feast upon your goodness and find there such joy and satisfaction that the world and everything it has to offer is paled and blurred as it is. God, move in hearts in this room Form this people into tools for your kingdom. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of duty. But God, may this room represent a people so overcome with the joy of your goodness that we give ourselves fully to the work. We live lives so radically different for your kingdom that the entire community around us is impacted and gets to taste and see how good you are. God, we trust you for this. We pray it in your name. Woo us, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.